as, as, as we talk about this song here just briefly, it says, Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain, leave to God uh, to order and provide. And, and really, that's, that's where Job is right now. And so as we consider that, that's, that's something that is a, a good um, uh, set of advice for us to do as well. As we begin today, what I want to do, and our subject is system failure versus simple faith, um, as we kind of review, in our study of the book of Job, we are in between rounds of conversations that Job is having with his friends. Last week, we gave a general comparison of the religions, religion of Job's day to the religions of our day. We couched all of this in Solomon's statement that there is nothing new under the sun. The same three categories Job's friends trusted in are the same ones that we see today. As Solomon observed, there's nothing, there wasn't any new wisdom. What people considered new was either rediscovered from the past or something that was just kind of, you know, reinvented. Today we'll not cover new information, but instead we're going to summarize what each of the friends said. We will also give the progression of Job's response to his suffering. And we'll use these to form a basic understanding moving forward. So here's the idea. Some of us, for various reasons, have possibly missed a Sunday here and there. I know. Oh, come on. But it happens. And it happens for good reasons. Then we have just the, the uh, I think, a, a good thing in reviewing of bringing us up to speed and saying, okay, this is where we're starting from now as we move ahead into these next conversations. Because if, if we don't have that grid that we're working from, then some of these things that we're going to be starting on and maybe uh, operating with a little bit differently, we're going to have a tough time pigeonholing it. We're going to have a tough time putting it into a category. And so that's the idea. So this is a Let's be reminded, we're going to add some things to that, but then also let's bring our, all of ourselves up to speed. And so as we do that, we're still kind of in this review stage here. I want to remind us of Job's three friends and the system, and this is just purely reminder. We observed that uh, the belief system of the day um, really falls into three categories, and this is where Job's uh, friends were from. Same thing today but we have three different areas for Eliphaz. He was the experientialist. Sometimes it would even border on, uh, not border on, but get into mysticism of these, of these you know, fantastic religious experiences, right? Beliefs are either based upon or reinforced by what a person observes or lives through. And so here's what he says in, four, in verses 7 and 9. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. That's, that's what I've seen. That's my truth, right? Um, we also uh, saw that, that he had uh, a dream, and we'll actually look at that a little bit later. But that's where he's coming from, is his experiences. For Bildad, he's the traditionalist. For inquire, please, of the former age, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are, sh are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? Learn from the past. Learn from what has been passed down to us. That's what we need. And then Zophar, we kind of labeled him the legalist. Rules and regulations. Uh, it's a, basically a works-based salvation or a works-based sanctification. And what he says is, if you put far away the evil of your hands and let no wrongdoing have a place in your tent, then truly your face will be lifted up with no mark of sin and you will be uh, fixed in your place without fear. So there you have it. If you just do these things, then everything's going to be fine. What we're going to talk about today is the friends failed system. And we're going to take some similar verses what we looked at, but some other things that they said and show that mm, no, this isn't right. Eliphaz says, my experience tells me that only people deserving of God's punishment receive it. 
okay? And by the way, punishment is anything bad that happens to you, all right? So we have to define that based upon what they said. So how do we see this happen in Eliphaz's life? What does he say? Suffering happens for a reason, right? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. We just read that a little bit earlier, but I want to emphasize that's what he's going by. He's going by, this is my experience. When people do bad things, they get in trouble, right? Bad things happen to them. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 17, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? This was a little bit of a dig toward Job, wasn't it? And by the way, this was part of that nightmare scene that he described where this mysterious spirit that scared him half to death came and the spirit is actually the one that he's quoting here. All right? So this, this ghostly figure confirmed his experiences. It was actually a part of his experiences. That goes back to that whole idea of the mysticism that we can sometimes see in religions. And then he says this, and this, these are his words, not him quoting a spirit. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. So Eliphaz said that no one can be righteous before God, right? I mean, that was what his dream said. And he said, he said this to counter Job's claim that he's blameless. So he's going right against Job with this. Eliphaz tried to motivate Job by warning him of God's just punishment. He encouraged Job to accept God's correction and benefit from having a restored relationship with him. Eliphaz believed Job must have done something wrong, and it must have been pretty bad to have suffered so and have been you know, all the loss and the pain that he had been experiencing. So Eliphaz's message was very straightforward. Seek God and repent. Be delivered from punishment and then be blessed. He goes on to say that God judges foolish people. Even though Eliphaz knows Job is wise, he must have acted foolishly and sinned. Job would, would know God was pleased with him when he experienced the good things of life again. But this message did not apply to Job. So regardless of how true Eliphaz's observations might have been about God and life and different things, because there is some truth to them, they were of no help to Job. Now we know that Job reasoned with Eliphaz. He answered him back and he tried to talk with him. But Eliphaz trusted in his life experiences. So he won't consider that God may allow suffering or even initiate suffering for any other reason than exacting justice, than punishing someone. Eliphaz held to the religious system of the day, but he promoted experience above doctrine and truth. He was more focused on what am I seeing and what is happening around me and what other kind of, of, of um supernatural experience might I have? And that was what he was really landing on. Then we have Bildad. Bildad said God's judgment or justice is pure and swift. We see in chapter 8, verses 3 and 20, so we got a couple of spots here. It says, does God subvert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice, okay? So does he somehow, you know, try to undercut it? Or does he try to change it? No. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold evildoers. So Bildad's message to Job is a warning of God's response. And by the way, I'm, I'm summarizing, you know, sometimes a couple of pages out of the text of what these men were doing. So we can't go through every verse. This Again, this is, this is building back and taking some of the things we've already looked at and, and adding to it and, and giving us that foundation that we're moving forward with. And I apologize, I should have said that a little bit earlier. So of course, Bildad is targeting Job since he directly questioned his righteousness. 
He believes that God does not allow bad things to happen to the blameless and he will not help the wicked. In other words, the wicked, they're, they're, bad things are going to happen and there's, there's no way to rescue them from that. The end of the wicked comes quickly, but the blameless will prosper and be happy. So what happens if you don't prosper and aren't happy? Right? Job is already being judged, but there is still time to seek God. Now, again, that's, that's from Bildad's perspective. All this is based upon the accumulated teachings from past generations, and they know more than Job does. They know more than any of Job's generation knows. We have to go back to what has already been tabulated, to what has already been a practice, to something that we, we, we can just fall back on and say, yeah, that's the truth. All this is based upon the accumulated teaching from past generations and this was Bildad's perspective of the system. Same system, different perspective. For Eliphaz, hey, I take this system that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, and I see, I see outcome. I see what happens. I, I, see, um, I make my observations. What Bildad says was, we have these traditions. And if you don't follow those, right, same system, Bad things happen to bad people, and good things happen to good people. Now, here's the thing. What he said about God, in many ways, was absolutely true. God is holy and just, and he will punish sinners. But scriptures say something different about that punishment, and I want you to see that in the next several verses. Psalm 37, verses 7 through 10. We're going to look at two parts of Psalm 37, but it says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now, who is he talking to here? He's talking to his followers, right? So he's saying, hey, rest in the Lord. Take, take, take your solace in him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in the way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evil do... Either, Evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. Now, just real quick, I'm going to pause here for a second. We're going to, to the next section. But look back here. It says, it says that you're, you're not supposed to fret because of him who prospers in the way, because the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. So this is an ongoing thing. And yet in here we, we see their time, you know, their time is going to be short. What, 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 all, what exactly does that mean? I think there's some clarification in the next part of the passage. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Yet he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man. And observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future, the future of the wicked shall be cut off. We're talking time passing before God may judge. And we see this backed up now in the New Testament. 2 Peter 2.9 The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. That doesn't sound like what Bildad assumes. That when somebody gets out of line, man, God's right there and he just blasts them. We see it all the time. Because bad things... You guys can't even finish it with me now? <laughs> Happen to bad people. I was waiting for somebody to say, anyway. <laughs> But by the same word, Peter continues in 3.7, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. <laughs> so we aren't supposed to get all frustrated because it seems like the evil get ahead. 
And yet Bildad's advice is, hey, we know by tradition, we know what we've been taught. The evil don't get ahead. Uh, I'm just going to throw out, you know, take it for what it's worth. He was wrong. Okay, all right. So now we come to Zophar. Zophar says there is a price for foolishness. Zophar approaches Job from the perspective of God's wisdom. We see this in chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Now, let me just pause here for a minute and say, would we argue with any of this? See, the issue that we have here is what these men are saying, much of it, is really good stuff. I mean, seriously, if I, if I wanted to, I could take a portion of this out and I could bring it over independently, lay out a three-point outline and preach from this. So it's not necessarily that all the things that they're saying are false. Some of it is. But as they're taking and they're applying it to life, they are, they are way off of the mark. And then when they turn around and apply it specifically to, to Job's life, there is no bearing whatsoever on what this man is going through and what they're telling him to do. So what Zophar is saying is, God is so wise that no human wisdom can ever compare to God's wisdom. And again, amen to that. Zophar also declared that God is all-powerful and all-knowing in his response to Job. So when we combine these character qualities, we see that God not only knows everything, he has the wisdom to always do the right thing, and he has the power to do it. <laughs> again, truth, that's right. But then we have to contrast that with what Zophar thinks of Job. And I alluded to that already, but look at this passage here. Job 11, 3 and 11 and 12. Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? In other words, won't he take notice of you? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Zophar concludes that Job was a wicked person who tricked everyone and hid his sin. That's what he's saying. You're good, Job, but God knows. Because only a wicked person would suffer as Job suffered. And by the way, this is where he's attributing this to foolishness, right? You think you're wise. You think you're smarter than God. But you're foolish. Because really, you're a wicked person. You see how he took some wonderful attributes of God, but then applied God's actions to what the Lord really didn't do or intend. That's pretty rough. And, and the problem is, that's what the system does. So what I want to do for just a few moments here is illustrate the system. Now, when I say illustrate the system, I really mean that. And I'm going to pattern this. It's, it's going to like look kind of funny at first. But I'm going to pattern this after, you know, Jesus calling himself the door and, and, and several other uh, uh, ways where, you know, uh, wisdom is likened to a tree and all these other things. You know, all these different word associations that the Bible uses so that we can lock something in. So what I want to do is kind of use a, a, a driving theme so that we can take these systems and, you know, put them into, you know, some context. Now, I, I, look, vehicles are not my thing. So if they're yours, this, you know, have, you have a little fun here, okay? The system. Same road, different vehicles. Same road, same belief system. Different ways to travel down that road. Here's the first one. Eliphaz, the sports cycle of experience. Yeah. 
okay? So I'm going I'm to be Eliphaz for a minute. My ride, my life is all about the experience. Everything around me determines my spiritual well-being. I love the freedom of living my spiritual life full throttle. Did you like that? A good life free of problems and full of exciting spiritual encounters fuels my sense of spiritual fulfillment. My experiences tell me that if I'm not feeling the joy of the Lord or negative things are taking place in my life, then I just don't have enough faith. And I'm giving my life, I'm not giving my life enough fuel. Like I got to find that hit, right? By the way, has anybody ever told you something that you're facing? Well, you just don't have enough faith. If you had enough faith, you wouldn't have that cancer. If you had enough faith, your marriage would be perfect. If you had enough faith, your bank account would be swelling. So this isn't just made-up stuff, folks. Now, here's where I'm going to, please excuse the pun, this is where the rubber meets the road, okay? My witness for God is filled with a lot of first-hand accounts of how God has worked in my life. There's a good chance that my stories will venture into the realm of mystery and supernatural encounters. The focus of my message the focus of my message is that the person listening to me needs to experience what I have experienced in order to have a good life. If they reject what I have seen or done or felt, then that's okay because being persecuted for seeing visions or being slain in the spirit is a good thing. And by the way, that gives me the hit I need. If they buy into my version of the system, then that will only fuel my ride for years to come. I also enjoy getting together with other spiritual cyclists and hearing their miraculous stories. Hmm. Do you happen to know somebody traveling down the system road like that? Now, am I saying that if they have some elements in their life that they don't have a true Christianity? Not necessarily. But what I am saying is, if that's what they're relying on, they're in trouble. Right? So now we're going to go to Bildad. The limo of tradition. Right? Now i got to get into character a little bit here for Bildad. I don't drive myself. My traditions are my limousine and my chauffeur that takes me down the road of my religious life. It's very comfortable and frankly quite stylish. When someone knocks on my window and tells me that I must trust in Jesus as my only transportation to heaven, I tell them my tradition is more than capable of getting me to eternal life. Now, spiritual limousines may have different drivers. So one driver might lean forward and say, well, I'm Catholic, or I'm a Muslim, or I'm a Jehovah's Witness. But they're all saying the same thing. I'm trusting in what others have passed down to me more than God's predetermined will to demonstrate his love to mankind by grace through faith and the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. You get it? My system is what I'm trusting in. And I'm just going to sit back and let it take me where it's going. It's safe. It's good. It's comfy. Don't bother me with these commitments. Don't bother me with the true faith. Because that makes me change, right, who I am. And then we have Zophar. The SUV of rules. <laughs> now, I'm Zophar. My ride is a little stiff. But my rules and regulations can get me through any road conditions that life can throw at me. I get my rules from my spiritual car dealer, my pastor, or my spiritual leader. Or a used set of rules is passed down by either my family or my friends. He, she, or they also happen to make the spiritual, make the spiritual rules and enforce the spiritual laws. 
Anybody ever been in a church where a pastor does that? Thou shalt do this and thou shalt not, not do that based upon what I'm telling you. The rules may come with few options, right? You can have a little bit different color rules and, you know, might have something that's a little bit different, but there's only one model, one set of rules, and everyone drives that vehicle. Rules keep me safe, and I will always be safe as long as I keep the rules of the road. My rules make me a better driver than most other people. See, because I'm following the rules. That makes me better than you. If people are in a wreck or get a flat tire or they struggle during bad weather, then either they don't have the right set of rules or they aren't following them. So get right or get out of the way. These sound familiar, don't they? Some of you have come from systems like this. Some of you might still be recovering. So let's switch gears now, pun intended, and summarize Job's journey through this extreme trial that he is going through. We're going to see Job's journey of faith. And this is, again, that alternate to the system and how it fails to a simple faith. And by the way, what we're going to go to to this point is not where Job is going to end up, but we're up to this point where he has come from. All right, and so that's that's where we're that's where we're starting from here. So the first thing is, in Job's journey of faith, utter hopelessness and despair. Now most of this is going to come scripture based. We're going to, just going to let the scriptures say what they are, but we're going to bring these forward. What we're not going to do today is look at all of the ways that Job was responding against his friends. I, I think that that's we we've done that. That's kind of in here. But we're looking at how he's dealing with God because that's what was happening. He looked to his friends, probably thought he was going to get some help from them, and then he's like, you guys are worthless. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, seriously, that's what he said. You're terrible. You're killing me. So, so I, I need to go to God. But that's not where he started. So in Job 3, he says this, May the day perish in which I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness, and may God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. Uh, that's heavy. And then we go to the latter part of that, of that passage, Job chapter 3, 20 through 22. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave? Now, let's just pause for a minute and remember something. Was this response to harsh circumstances unique to Job? Was it? No. There were prophets, possibly even a king, who looked at life and said, I, I want to be done, <laughs> right? And, and, and folks, I, I'm not accusing people of, of you know, like feeling like they got to commit suicide, right? But have you been there before? Have you thought to yourself, you know, if you gave me a coin right now, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, heads heads I go, tails I, you know, I, I don't like what's happening. Can I, can I just opt out of this? So he starts off with this hopeless despair. But then what we see is a desire for relief. And, and I'll tell you, I'm only going to give you a couple of spots of this. It was a couple of chapters. If you read the couple of chapters, you'll be like, really? I mean, it's still really bad. But he wasn't just saying, you know, please just kill me. Okay? There's, there's, a, there's, some, there's some sparks of hope here. Okay? And so he says in Job chapter 6, verse 14, To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friends, even though he, for, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. So he's saying, you know, if you just do something for me, that'd be great. And then 7-11, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak to the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. So in the previous verse, he's, he's, he's reaching. He wants something. He's, he's pleading, asking, begging for some help. 
And then he says the same thing. I'm going to talk to God, right? So again, it's not much, but we see a step up from, I'm done. I'm out. Just, just really, just take my life. I can't go on to, can I get some help somewhere? Right? Then we go to really what is, is where we, we gained some ground and, and we appreciated uh, as we studied this, some of what Job was going through, where he just has this longing for relationship and that was specific to God himself. So in chapter 9, verse 2, he says this, Truly I know it is so, meaning you're, you're telling me about this system. You're telling me about this, this, this way of, of, of life, this religion that has been passed down to us that I've given you the you know, crux of many, many times. And, and I get it. You know, that, that's where I was, right? But how can a man be righteous before God? See, in his circumstances, he's looking at me saying, something's terribly wrong here. Where did all this come from? I must have done something, but I know that I didn't. I didn't do anything to deserve this. I know I didn't. At one point, he's even telling one of his friends, he said, he said look, you know, if, if I were to agree with you, I'd be a liar. I've never lied to you. Just listen to me. Listen to what I'm telling you. And so there were some really frustrating times going back and forth. So he wants to know, how can I have this right relationship before God? And then later on in that same chapter, verses 14 and 19, he says, How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? If it is a matter of strength, indeed, he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? In other words, can I just get a hearing? Can I come before him and plead my case to him? And then in the same chapter down in verses 32 and 33 says this, For he's not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that he should go to court to get, we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. So what he's, but he, but what he's, what he's saying here is this. I want to approach him, but I'm afraid. I need to approach him, but I'm afraid. I feel like I am righteous, but man, that doesn't compare to his. And if you remember, a part of, of what he was dealing with was he says, I know what's right, but I also know who God is, and, and, and I don't know what to think anymore. I just don't know what to think anymore. But man, if I had an advocate, if I had someone to come alongside of me, someone who was, who was impartial and, and, and could, could kind of be the runner in between us, maybe that would work. But if you notice, all of this is pointing to the fact that he wants that relationship with the Lord. Right now, he feels completely, totally cut off from him. He feels like he's being judged by him. So in that one sense, he's agreeing with his friends, but he's saying, yes, but there's a problem. His justice can't be right because he would be judging a righteous person. And I can't lie to you and say that I've done something wrong to deserve it. So here's this struggle that Job has. So then we see in chapters 13 and 14 that there is hope for forgiveness and even this idea of resurrection. It's pretty amazing. So let's not forget where we're coming from. Utter, complete, total hopelessness. I just want to die. To now what we're going to read. And by the way, here's the great stuff. Here's the great uh, fact that we have here. We're building what we're kind of springboarding from, from here through the end of the book. There's more coming. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. And by the way, again, not saying that his perspective was right, but was he correct in saying that he could defend himself? Yes. Let's not forget. 
back in the first part of the book, God had already said that he was a blameless man. Upright. All right? I will defend my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation. For a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Folks, I mean, you know, th think about this. Now put yourself in this position. What you're pretty much saying is, I can take my life presently right now and go before God and I can just lay it out and say, see, I'm not doing anything wrong. I am presently living as you want me to live. And vindicated, let me use another word, God will validate that. <laughs> let me tell you something. Uh, I'd probably be a lot more like the, the uh, what, what do you call it, the high priest who that one time a year was going to go to the Holy Holies, right? I'd be like, okay, all right. <laughs> but that's really the way we should be. That's really the way we should be with our lives. See, Job wasn't perfect. Job kept current. That doesn't mean that he just sinned and then made it right and sinned and made it right. He repented of those things, but when he did sin, he kept it current. He goes on to say this. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. For now, you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. Job believed in a forgiving God because ultimately that was his problem. It was sin. But Job also believed that there was a God that was going to one day give him life again. And we studied that before. We studied that concept of resurrection in there. So what is our relevance for today? Just so you know, this is really our conclusion. You don't have to worry about that last little part there. First, the system deceives people into thinking that they're okay spiritually. We're going back to what Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz said. The system deceives people into thinking that they are okay spiritually. That's, that's the response that you get when someone starts to talk with you. Now, here's the thing. We've got to remember, when a Jehovah's Witness comes to our door and they're selling their traditions, because that's all it is. It can't be the truth because it, it's Christless. There, there, there is no salvation. It's all works. And so when they come to our door and they start selling us their traditions and we say, mm -mm, I'm a follower of Jesus, right? Now flip that around and we start talking to them and they say, uh, mm -mm, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. You see, in their, from their perspective, it's, it's no different. From our perspective, as far as the decision is concerned, it's really no different. It's the content. It's the content of the message. It's how it lines up with the Word of God. That's what we're talking about here. Amen. So from this vantage point, if someone's circumstances and feelings, the, tra the traditions that they hold, right? That's, that's experiences, traditions, or the code of conduct replace Christ or are added to God's grace for salvation, then they are lost. That's what we read in Romans. You can't add to the gospel. And for some, taking away from the gospel. So that's the first thing. The system deceives. Second, true followers of Christ can be affected by one or more of these counterfeits to righteous living. We can get caught up in the experience or circumstances and rely upon them to determine our happiness or our holiness. 
Can, can we be transparent with one another? Aren't there times when you look at your life and you see either your present circumstances or, or kind of what you see as the trajectory, or maybe even look back in the past and say, man, I must not be pleasing God because bad things have happened. What did I do wrong? Because what I thought I wanted to set out to do didn't happen. And I had really good intentions. What we need to understand, though, is that these things can be a part of fulfilling Scripture, drawing us close to the Lord, preparing or refining us for service. But what we experience or feel can never go against the truth of God's word, right? So we're talking about experiences, and we're going to have those. But we need to remember that we can be deceived and we can deceive ourselves, right? We can be deceived by our own experiences, by the things that we're living in, our circumstances, Or we can even deceive ourselves through them. So we've got to be careful. But folks, if you're obeying the Lord and you see the blessings of obedience, now we're talking about true biblical obedience, all right? That is a validation of the fact that you are living your life according to God's standard. But if he brings a fiery trial in that, that is no less of a validation. Do you understand? Let me say it in a different way. Trials are going to come based upon the fact that we discussed why those trials come. We should expect them, not wish for them, not feel, oh, I can't wait. But we should expect them because they are going to make us more like Christ. They're going to make us better equipped. They're going to possibly take away some of the dross, some of the, some of the things that we need to lose in our life that might not even necessarily be sinful, but not, might not be what's best. Traditions, too, need to be measured against the Word of God. Now, again, some of us may struggle, struggle. I don't know what it is today. Struggle with past traditions. Let me give you a couple of scriptures just to keep these things in mind as we think about tradition. Colossians 2.8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So a tradition in Christ, that's not what we're talking about, all right? Galatians 1.14, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. See, right there, we had, we had a, a, a combination vehicle. We have Paul, who is on that motorcycle, right? Full throttle in tradition. But notice, he was on the same road. Same road. So it's the traditions of men that we need to be careful of. Third, the advice of Job's friends did more harm than good. Remember, Job's friends made harsh accusations and passed judgment without any evidence. There was no room in their belief system for compassion or understanding or support for Job, not because of real sin, but because they could only see his circumstances as judgment. He violated something. And we know that because we've laid him up against our experiences. We've laid him up against our traditions. We've laid him up against our rules. And he is found wanting. Oh, and by the way, most of what we uh, um, uh, accused him of, we made up. We surmised. We speculated. Uh, by the way, are you learning anything about how not to advise a friend? How about how not to encourage a fellow brother or sister in Christ? <laughs> but 
at the same time, are you learning anything about making sure that what you're saying to someone who doesn't know the Lord is effective? Because they might not be, they probably aren't on the same road as you. If their life is driven by those three things we talked about, if their life is a part of the system. Now let's shift over to Job. Job, on the other hand, was seeking a righteous relationship with God. He already had a right relationship before God, but his present circumstances clouded his understanding. Job was overwhelmed by this fiery trial, and let's not forget, that Satan unleashed on him and that God had allowed to test his faith. That was the purpose. If you remember, we've alluded to this a number of times and said it in this message, Job believed like his friends. This is more than Job, in other words, this process that he's going through is more than Job just looking for another path, right? Because frankly, there isn't any other path. Name something, name any religion that doesn't fit into one of those three categories that we gave. It could be a combo, right? It could be a combo meal religion. But it's going to fit into one of those categories. Job understood that he needed God and God alone. That he needed the Lord to forgive him and give him a new life after this present one that would be free from sin. That was his only hope. Now, again, we're talking about a righteous person. We're not talking about someone who didn't have any hope, but God was refining his beliefs. God was giving him a greater understanding of who he was, who he is. So Job had faith in God despite his circumstances. It's taking some time, but it's there. Remember what he said, he's my salvation. And I want to leave us with what our brother Christopher Ash said again. Uh, the, the words are, you know, again, I said this when, when I introduced this. Um, sometimes someone can say something so much better, you got to use it, right? The system of his friends tells him, tells Job, that he must be a secret sinner because he is suffering. He knows this is not true. The evidence of his eyes tell him that God is dangerous, random, and unpredictable. This doesn't say that that's who God is. The evidence of his eyes are telling him that, right? The faith in his heart tells him that God is righteous and that he, Job, is a believer who is in the right before God. Knowing the system is not true and despite the evidence of randomness and danger, remember, I'm afraid of him. I'm scared to death of him. Job's decision goes with Job's faith. This is why he appeals to God. He wants an audience with God because that's the only one. I'm trying to blank it, folks. It's not blanking. We're good. Okay. Ignore the picture up there. <laughs> that's the only hope that he has. It's the only hope he has. And if you can wrap your mind around this, What God is giving to him, okay, now remember, extreme obedience, extreme faith, blamelessness. How's this man going to be tested? He's going through an extreme test because God has something more to show him. And if we took the whole of what we know in Scripture and we refine that down to what we are told about trials and we look at the other different ways that God tried people, whether it be Joseph or Moses or David and so on, right? 
and we were to see the outcome of their lives or not even be able to see some of the things that took place, right? We would still see a gracious God because that gracious God says, I want you to know who I am. And we're not talking about someone who needed salvation. We're talking about someone who needed to experience in real time who his Savior really was. And get rid of some of the excess baggage that he had. Let me just say one more thing real quick. It's kind of a teaser, but we know that in the end, Job is blessed. And there's a lot of restoration that takes place. If we go back to the beginning, one of the things that Job said what, 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 he, what he said flat out, I was afraid this was going to happen. Everything was going great. I was afraid this was going to happen. We don't see him saying that in the end. Why? Because God brought him to a different level of understanding, a needful level of understanding of who he is. He's going to do that with you folks. He's going to. Let me encourage you to be teachable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've kind of just brought ourselves to a point that we can build on, I pray that we will be challenged both by your grace in Job's life and the fact that he wanted to know who you were in spite of his circumstances. We think again of what we're, we're told in the, old, in the New Testament, looking back on Job, that we have to remember the endurance of Job. It wasn't just that he gutted it through some terrible circumstances. He endured so that he can understand you better. We know, Lord, there's more to this story. And as we add to it, I pray that it will help us achieve what I believe are your goals for this book, is to have a greater understanding of who you are, a better understanding of how we can work through trials, um, identifying some of the things in our life that we rest on that are not of you, and also, Lord, how we can better help people and not judge them when they're going through rough circumstances. Lord, we must confess, sometimes our, our human gut reaction is, I wonder what they did wrong. What did they do to deserve that? And Lord, we know that sometimes that could be something that's truthful, but there are plenty of other times when you're doing a work. And that work might even be something that we can learn from as we look at their lives. Father, one more thing. We ask that you will equip us help others through these difficult times. I think Job's friends made the mistake of trying to find those magical words that would just make everything better. Help us, Lord, just to simply be there and speak when we need to. In Jesus' name, amen.